expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Our herbs are withering in the fields. If we do not get an immediate supply of source water, they will perish and thousands who rely on our remedies will die when the sickness comes. Most of them children. I am not without sympathy, Luna. Nobody likes a dying child. Which is why I have generously offered to provide you with all the source water you need at last cycle's rate. And triple the transfer fees. You know we cannot afford that. The state of Omadrian coffers is not my concern. Well, the state of your people should be. I will remind you that if they are all dead, you will have no one to tax. <laughs> I'll take that under advisement. London. It is Thursday, September 24th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today, beautiful day in London, Ontario, here on my first autumn show of the year. And today we're going to be generally looking at, uh, let's just say, government spending and taxation issues and other interventions in the marketplace, like landlord licensing here in the city of London. You know, the real, the real story isn't out yet. You've heard a lot of facts, but you haven't heard the story. Uh, we're going to talk about something that I know Paul Burton at the Free Press will disagree with me on, and that's privatizing the LTC. We should do it now. Take a look at that burning bus on the front page of the paper yesterday. Hey, Michael Moore, coming up next week. A hate story. Of course, that's not the name of his movie, but we'll be talking about that. And off the top of the show, we're going to be talking about the harmonized sales tax, which one of our listeners has called not the HST, but the BST. <laughs> and we'll be getting into that. 519-661-3600, number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. Remember, you can write us and email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com or visit our website at justrightmedia.org with a triple W, of course. Got some email from a couple of our listeners um, here in particular. Marco writes, uh, he says, With school starting back up again for me, I hope to find time to tune in to this week's broadcast. You don't have to do that every week, Marco. You can catch, catch up online as well if you want. But he writes, More importantly, setting aside time for the one hour of sanity that your show continues to provide. Says he's writing because he wants to get my take on the proposed harmonized sales tax, the GST and PST blended together, which is set to take effect in Ontario in, uh, in 2010, of course. And he says, quote, My personal opinion in a nutshell is that it's just another money grab by the McGuinty government. I mean, if our economy is flopping around like a fish out of water and unemployment has been on the increase, why reach even deeper into people's pockets at a time where people are trying hard to make ends meet? Would it not make more sense to start cutting back spending? Hmm, yeah, I think it might. It all sounds like a BST to me, pardon my corny joke. Also, he's curious to know how this would affect the part in Freedom Party's platform, which calls for replacing property taxes by adding a municipal premium onto the PST and the GST. And he says, is even having a GST necessary to begin with? Got a similar question, too, from Tim. 
who also wrote, and he said, you know, I thought uh, given Freedom Party's policy of moving away from income taxes and towards more consumption taxes, that we would be in favor of the HST. And he's reacting to a media um, coverage that of the recent uh, St. Paul's by-election in which Paul... Uh, McKeever, Freedom Party leader, was uh, quoted as saying that the HST is a major gouge. Now, so I guess that might sound like a little bit of a contradiction to somebody. You know, I've always said that the taxes you want to have are only sales taxes. Sales taxes, consumption taxes in general is, is the broader term. You want to stay away from property and income taxes entirely because those are extremely, extremely harmful taxes. And you have to understand that anything you see in a party platform, and I can only speak for Freedom Party since I'm involved with it, is you have to look at the whole picture. You, you cannot just look at the tax situation. Nothing, for example, in Freedom Party's platform regarding taxes could possibly done be done if the other parts of the platform were not also implemented at the same time. And that includes major changes to health care and education spending. And basically, you know, the whole idea is to convert Ontario's PST into a broader-based uh, value-added tax. And you can actually lower the tax once you take into account reduced government spending, which will not happen with the other political parties. I mean, you can just uh, forget about that, you know, just from the word go. But, in, you know, this would all be meaningless and not doable unless you consider the spending side of the equation. And that's where, uh, Marco, you're totally right. It's all about spending. Um, you know, education would have to be paid for by parents and students themselves, which, which we discussed in some detail a few weeks ago when, when we were joined here on the show by former London trustee Robert Vaughan. And the health care system would have to be financed in one of three ways, completely up to the health care consumer. Either pay for government health care insurance, pay for private health care insurance, or pay as you go. You would neither be forced nor prevented from exercising any of those options of your choice. You have to have that system in place before you can even think about cutting taxes, especially in Ontario. Most people don't know that over 100% of Ontario's income taxes, over 100%, goes to health care alone. We could not even support our health care system based on our entire income tax system. And as long as we have government-funded health care and education, taxpayers cannot possibly have, you know, any tax relief ever. Don't even think about it. Don't even talk like that. Taxes will continue to, to, to rise until something gives, and I, I don't have a crystal ball as to, to any specifics, but government is incapable of running anything, and that's not just a bad joke or even, you know, the learned result of repeated experience. That, that, that's not all you need. It's, it's due to the nature of government. We talked about that last week. It's a moral issue. And morality is real. It's not some imagined supernatural phenomena, you know, or evil capitalists who cause economic collapses. Government is an instrument of force, constituted under a supposedly objective laws, instituted to prohibit the initiation of force in society. Hence, civilization. A society in which the use of force is properly prohibited and justifiably used only in self-defense. So, you know, government is a gun. Like a criminal, it does not have to earn its keep. And just cutting that line makes everything else happen. Everything else is inevitable after that point. You know, earning being defined as uh, that which you can acquire on a free market, which means free of violence and free of coercion, under voluntary consensual conditions. You can't go around running a healthcare system with a gun, or an education system with a gun. And then on top of it, hypocritically preach that you're against violence in society and we've got to teach kids not to be violent. And, you know, 
it, it's, <laughs> how can you expect anything good to come of it? You, you think the kids are that stupid? They might not know it explicitly, but they sense it. You know, a violent robber or a looter can always point to the good works that he does with his stolen loot. You know, it's very easy to do. And in fact, some out-and-out crooks have done it and, and earned, quote, the respect of people around them. But, of course, the looter never points at his victims. He only points at the good things he does and at the many, many more people who are hurt versus the few or none who are helped. Now, in Ontario, you know, administration of justice and law and all that sort of necessary part of government, if you look at the budget, it represents generally between 6 and 9% of the province's spending. And even there, it's likely bloated. Yet that should be 100% of this province's tax spending, which is why... I say again with regard to Freedom Party's platform, um, you have to have, you can't just lower taxes. You have to lower the PST. You have to, and you can lower the PST once you cut out like 90% of the direct government spending. Now back to McGinty. Yes, him bringing in the HST is a massive tax grab since the rest of his plan is just a dishonest shell game. He's, you know, irrational at its very concept and description. Nothing else is being fundamentally changed. Most importantly, government spending, which is, you know, the only measurement of our tax rates. Uh, you know, September 16 here, London Free Press, Chip Martin writes, uh, selling HST a challenge, MPP accepts. And he writes about uh, Ontario Revenue Minister John Wilkinson that telling voters new taxes are good for them is never an easy sell. And, of course, our minister has the unenviable task of selling the provincial liberals' government's harmonized sales tax, which will hit a wide array of items and services from new homes and ice cream rental fees to funeral plots, lawyers' fees, utility bills, as if they weren't high enough already. Political opponents are raging against the HST as a tax grab, but Wilkinson said people should understand. A reduction in income tax, rebates, and exemptions will cushion the blow for those who can least afford the change. Which, which right away admits that it is a tax grab, doesn't it? That's, why would they be given a rebate if it wasn't? And they're talking about the by-election in St. Paul's, which will be watched closely as a referendum on the government's plan, and of course the Liberals won that one. McGinty has called the HST, quote, the single most important thing we can do to make Ontario's economy more competitive. Why is the government doing this? Jobs, says Ontario Minister John Wilkinson. Our tax reform is not about us getting more money, it's about getting more jobs. It's a net deficit to the province, $2.3 billion over four years. We're not raising additional money, and my opponents know that. People need to know that on one hand, sales tax will be going up on July 1st, but on the other hand, 92% of Ontarians will receive a personal income tax cut, dropping the rate 1%. On the first $37,000. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Christina Blizzard has a different take on the matter, writing in the September 19 Free Press, incorrectly headlined, uh, both parties want to ding us with the HST. She notes, uh, actually, it should have said, both governments want to ding us with the HST, not parties, because then I thought liberal, conservative. No, she's talking about federal, provincial. Uh, and she says, both the feds and the province are to blame for this shameful, bald-faced tax grab. Yes, families will get a $1,000 rebate and individuals will get $300 to offset the costs. But that's nothing compared to the money this will bring into government coffers. In the fiscal year 2009-10, the 14.7% gas tax is projected to rake in around $2.4 billion. An 8% tax would bring in around another $1 billion, give or take. Remember how the GST was supposed to be revenue neutral? 
harmonization is going to hurt consumers at a time when they can least afford it, she concludes. Now, of course, all the tax figures and estimates are nothing more than speculation. To take any of them seriously is kind of a fool's game. All that matters is spending, government spending. If spending is being increased, then taxes will rise along with deficits and along with debts until they reach a crescendo causing production to stop. We already saw one of those crescendos just recently. Consumption, however, cannot stop since people need to eat and they need to live some, somewhere. So what'll, what happens is inflation returns as more dollars chase fewer goods because production's been cut back. Prices of everything starts going through the roof and even worse, I mean, worse than, than the trend today. Politicians and governments will, of course, then publish their people even more, blaming them for the state's interference in their economic affairs. And, of course, they'll promise to fix things by making more laws, more regulations, and strangling their citizens even more. And so on and so on until your society stagnates like a stale pool of water or dissipates, much like the Roman Empire did after it taxed itself out of existence. We did a whole show on that with Kevin Godet of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation who joined us on the show that day and we went into a whole history of what was the fall of Rome all about. And it turns out it was about basically overtaxing itself. And, uh, you know, you might be hearing a lot that uh, the Chamber of Commerce and groups like that are in favor of the HST. Well, it's small wonder. A lot of businesses who are members of those groups do, will, will actually benefit because uh, under the arrangement, they get to reclaim some of the uh, sales taxes they pay on goods that they buy in or only to reproduce other goods, if you know what I mean. So uh, certainly you can hear, hear why they might like that. But it's certainly not a reason uh, for the general taxpayer. It's, it's a big ripoff. It's a big, huge uh, expenditure. But it's not the tax you should be complaining about. It is the spending. And as long as they've got you looking at the taxes and the deficits and never addressing the spending. But, you know, most people don't want to address the spending. They want their free health care. They want their free education. And the consequences, be damned, we can keep yelling at our politicians because they can't do the impossible, for heaven's sakes. And anyways, that's the whole story right there. I'm going to take a break now, and what you're hearing next is from uh, the movie Michael Moore Hates America, because, of course, a week today, a week from today, um, he's got a new movie coming out called Michael Moore, uh, or, sorry, Capitalism, A Love Story. But we'll talk about that on the other side of this break. We live in a free and open society where dissent is not to be stifled or silenced. Hey kid, what you trying to pull? Little honesty with a silent bowl. And hey kid, stop. Hollywood's bought everything. Everyone's sold out. It's just a pathetic mess. Michael Moore had pissed me off. It wasn't his infamous Academy Awards speech. I mean, everyone has the liberty to bitch about politics. It's our right as Americans, and dissent is what makes us a great nation. But this guy had painted a picture of my country as a place where no one can succeed. Where some dark shadowy figure was deep below ground, running his multinational corporation, keeping you from living your American dream. And he told people around the world that we were stupid. And he told the Australians that the last place they should try to be like is America. Yep, the worst thing you can do to become like America. And he was always talking about how great Canada is. What is the Canadian ethic? The Canadian ethic is we're all in the same boat. We're all Canadians. And, and we don't have that ethic in America. Our ethic is 
it's it's every man for himself. I think he probably believes he's speaking for the masses. I think he probably believes that his end justifies the means. And all, the only plea I would give to people speaking their minds is try not to fall into the Nixon-Michael Moore trap of the end justifies the means. People have so, become so cynical that no matter what you give them, oh, well, uh, anything goes. You can't get the truth, so... so uh, if it's entertaining, that's fine. That's good enough for me. If you say, well, I know this is right, so I'm going to do this to get there, that second you take that turn, that second you go, you know, uh, this, this drug dealer really shouldn't be in our neighborhood, and he's really selling drugs to kids, and I really don't like it, so I'm really going to get my gun, and I'm really going to pop him without a trial. Uh, you've crossed over. And as soon as you say, man, you know, corporations in America, jobs are being lost, you know, I, I got to kind of make it look like these jobs are lost because of this, and I got to make it look like Charlton Heston is, you know, uh, spitting on the graves of the people that call him by because the NRA is a bad organization. As soon as you do that, you've crossed out of the marketplace of ideas. In the case of Michael Moore, uh, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, um doing away with guns and, and, and doing away with uh, Bush and the administration and so forth. Uh, and so, you know, even if he's telling us half-truths or uh, he's mean to people and uh, abuses them in that process, uh, yeah, it's okay because uh, uh, we got to get rid of this guy, uh, Bush. And um, I, I don't go for that. You know, creating cynicism is exactly what um, Michael Moore's whole tactic is all about because he wants to create confusion in people so that they don't know what side to pick, so they'll pick his side. Um, you know, it's going to be called um, capitalism a love story, and of course uh, we know it won't be that. It'll be capitalism a hate story because Michael Moore hates capitalism and he loves the state. Mary Corliss of Time magazine says, quote, This is Michael Moore's magnum opus, the grandest statement of his career, end quote. It will be released in theaters next week on Friday, October 2nd, though I've heard there's an advanced screening here in London on October 1st. And it's called Capitalism, a Love Story. Makes you want to ask, you know, does capitalism mean never having to say you're sorry? <laughs> and you can bet that it's, you know, its real content would be better titled Michael Moore Hates Capitalism. There's already been a film made, Michael Moore Hates America, which you heard a clip from. But the conservative spin on that film kind of misses a lot of the essentials. Michael Moore doesn't so much hate America as he hates the United States of capitalist America. And he loves a fascist socialist state of America. That's what he's basically in favor of. Moore fears love rejection, reads the London Free Press headline, a little tiny thing, too, on September 21st, uh, out of Bel Air, Michigan. Filmmaker Michael Moore, quote, gave re residents of his adopted Michigan community an early showing of his new documentary on the weekend and urged them to help overthrow an economic system, he said, is beyond redemption. More than 500 people crowded into the Bel Air Theater to see Capitalism, a love story, a film based on the premise that greed and corruption have subverted the U.S. democracy. 
I know what's in front of me these next few weeks and months, Moore told one audience. That's why I wanted to watch this with you guys before I'm thrown to the lions, end quote. The two showings, along with three parties in Bel Air, a rural village about 386 kilometers northwest uh, of Detroit near Moore's Lakeside home, raised about 25,000 U.S. for the Antrim County Democratic Party, which of course is who Michael Moore is always campaigning for. The film to be released in the U.S. October 2nd blames the economic crisis on President Reagan era even deregulation and greedy business executives who Moore believes undermined free enterprise by pushing for policies that benefited the richest 1%, end quote. Now, it's funny to hear an anti-capitalist complain about undermining free enterprise since that's capitalism. Why would he be worried about that? Um, does he not know what the words mean? And of course, what he's probably picking on is not capitalism, but capitalists, the business type of capitalists. We talked about that. Business people, not really capitalists, probably most of them are socialists, and uh, who are getting money at the government trough, which he no doubt will be calling capitalism. But we'll see. Haven't seen the movie, haven't really heard any specific uh, um, reviews of it, but uh, that's my expectation at this point. I'm sure we'll hear more after it's released next week and um, certainly follow up on that, hopefully get a copy, and, you know, let you listen in on a few odd little things from it. Here in London, we have our own Michael Moore, and he sits at the editorial head of the London Free Press, and that's Paul Burton, who, regrettably, I have to say, is no friend of the taxpayer, capitalism, or freedom, and is a consistent major ally of the state. You can see that in the September 9th London Free Press editorial, Municipal Tax Hikes, ensure a city's vitality and growth and he totally you know even even fails to attempt an argument in favor of hikes and basically gets on the the basic necessity of taxation itself which is a more of a different subject but he does ask how much of a municipal tax increase is too much those who believe in so-called zero percent increases should be careful what they wish for this is exactly the situation municipalities across Ontario find themselves in now because in the name of 0% tax increases, they put off fixing sewers and roads when the work was required. And I have to tell you something. I'm the guy behind the 0% tax increase thing. I was working with Jim Montag on the Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition here in London. That was so long ago. Uh, they still talk about it. There hasn't been 0% tax increases since back in those days. And again as we said in the opening it's not about taxing it's about spending hello but nobody talks about the spending obviously if you're not going to sp stop the spending or even address it how can you talk about tax decreases and then he writes meanwhile critics of such apparently frivolous investments such as say the london convention center the john labatt center or the london Con uh, Co covent Gar garden market ignore the fact that these improvements to the community might just have helped attract investment to London's downtown and may even have prevented it from falling into complete ruin. Uh, <laughs> we'll never know, of course, he says, but the lesson is that these matters are never as simple as some would have us think, end quote. Now, for a guy who always concludes by we'll never know, he sure presumes to know a lot. What he really means is that he'll never know because he doesn't want to know, because that would require responsibility and accountability in government spending and an end to all of the socialist paradise fantasies that continue to destroy civilization after civilization from the municipal level right to the top. You know, it's a principle. Every single thing that governments say they can provide can also be provided cheaper and better, you know, than the private marketplace can't. There's only one thing that the government can provide cheaper than the private marketplace, and that's the delivery of justice and the enforcement of individual rights. That's the, 
its exclusive prerogative. Everything else from public transit, housing, entertainment centers, for heaven's sakes, education and health care can always be provided better by private interests. Uh, letter to the editor, writer Sandra Barker, apparently agrees. In the September 19th, 09 London Free Press, she wrote in response to this, so I used her stuff because it was pretty good. She says, you know, in due course... Um, Continual tax hikes to finance fantasy projects will only cripple a city and stifle growth. People will leave and those who stay will have little money to spend. Overtaxing people is irresponsible and will, as a consequence, hurt the most vulnerable. My house taxes have gone up 45% in nine years. My sister's house in Etobicoke is worth $100,000 more, but she pays more than $1,000 a year less in taxes. We've heard all the excuses for this, too. And my friend's house in Victoria is worth $150,000 more, but she pays $2,000 a year less. 9% of our municipal taxes go to social housing and to service the city's debt. These facts should be a wake-up call. The city needs to save for the things it needs, and then, and only then, will it be financially sound and have a promising future. Just ask Mayor Hazel McCallion of Mississauga. The city needs to get its grubby hands out of our pockets, get its priorities straight, build a reserve, keep us out of debt, set priorities, learn to say no, and understand the difference between wants and needs. And Sandra Barker, if you're ever going to run for City Hall, you're going to get my vote because that's exactly what needs to be done. Uh, just no two ways about it. You know, everybody's attention lately has been distracted, too, about the, the so-called budget scandal over at the hospital and uh, that's another distraction that's a complete non-issue that's just business as usual uh, a three million dollar contract which is peanuts um it, it's just it just goes on and, and the whistleblower by the way it, that's always an internal policy and it sounds like it worked fine the, the whole issue you're hearing about is who, who broke it to the media because that person clearly broke the law because they broke if they're especially if they're an employee um, obviously some kind of agreement that they made. And that's all that's about. So it's funny how people will cry about, uh, you know, they say we're going to give value for taxpayer dollars. There's no such thing. It's not your dollar. It's their dollar. It was yours when you had it in your hands. But once it's gone, it's not yours anymore. And, and you know, governments keep talking about the money they've already taken from us as though it was still ours. How long does it stay ours? Ten years after they spent it on something? Is it still ours too? Because the debt sure is, I'll tell you. Anyways, we're going to take a look at the LTC and why I think, uh, again, Paul Burton is just so wrong about his, uh, actually what was more of a personal attack on Paul Van Meerbergen than anything else. And we're going to take a break it's at the bottom of the hour, and when we come back, we'll be talking about public transit in the LTC. Oh, well, you asked me to find out about that alleged empty hospital in North London. Oh, yes. Uh, well, as I warned you, Minister, the driver's network is not wholly reliable. Uh, Roy has got it wrong. Thank heavens for that. How did you find out? Uh, through the uh, private secretary's network. <laughs> and? Uh, well, in fact, there are only 342 administrative staff at the New St. Edward's Hospital. The other 170 are porters, cleaners, laundry workers, gardeners, cooks, and so forth. And how many medical staff? Oh, uh, none of them. <laughs> none? No. But uh, we are talking about St. Edward's Hospital, aren't we? Yes, it's brand new. It was completed 15 months ago and fully staffed. But unfortunately, at that time, there were government cutbacks, so consequently there was no money left for medical services. A brand new hospital with over 500 non-medical staff and no patients. Oh, there is uh, one patient. Uh, one? Yes, the deputy chief administrator fell over a piece of scaffolding and broke his <laughs> oh, God. Thank heavens I wasn't asked about this in the house. Why hasn't it got out? 
Well, actually, I think it's been contrived to keep looking like a building site, and so far no one's realised it's operational. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, scaffolding, skip still there, the normal thing. The normal thing? I think I'd better go and have a look at this before the opposition does. Uh, yes, it's surprising the press haven't found out by now, isn't it? Fortunately, Bernard, most of our journalists are so incompetent they'd have the gravest difficulty in finding out that today is Wednesday. Uh, it's actually Thursday. <laughs> In terms of uh, maintaining the fleet we've got, I'm told that we're behind on our, some of our maintenance for our bus fleet, and that's, that could be problematic in the long term. Where are we on that? Well, we have, uh, where we're behind is, is probably an understatement. Uh, we, um, we have a significantly aging fleet. 65% uh, of our vehicles have an average age of 15 plus uh, years of service. By the time we retire them, they have well over a million and a million and a half kilometers on them. We're entering a pretty aggressive program. We started in 2000, uh, but it runs, 14 buses will be replaced every year for the next 10 years uh, with the newer technology buses. So that's, uh, that's a pretty significant undertaking. The 14 buses on average will cost about 6.5 million. How do we pay for that? Well, we uh, have the province on side now. On the province, after uh, getting out of transit business, uh, have, have uh, jumped back in. They'll find up to one third. We've been heavily uh, lobbying the federal government to do likewise, and then we would look to the municipal tax uh, fares for the balance. Would we look at any point in the future at lower user fees, like lower fares? Is one of the concerns I hear from people, and I have friends to say, tell me this, that they can, they can drive to work for less money than it costs to take the bus, assuming that they've already bought the car, they already have the car, they're using the car on the weekends. The extra expense of taking the car to work is less than taking the bus. Why would I take the bus is the question. Well, I think that I, I would maybe challenge them. We have, the more you use us, the less, they, less uh, you pay. So if, if we look ahead then, you do have to get people out of the cars. You make it less attractive to take the car, that's one thing. How do you convince drivers, just as an example, to stay out of the high traffic lanes or the high volume lanes? How do you do that? I mean, that's a pretty major job in and of itself, isn't it? Well, if, if and, and it's not new, it's not, it's not new technology. No, it's pretty exciting to be done in other cities. Right. What you do is you, you, for example, in the peak periods, if you designate the curve lane as a high occupancy vehicle lane, and people love fines, so you, <laughs> if a vehicle, if there's a single occupancy vehicle in the, in the lane, it's not supposed to be there, uh, uh, law enforcement tickets them, and you make the tickets uh, substantial. They'll only do it one or two times. Can you get public support for that? But we are reluctant to, to fine people large sums of money for those kinds of infractions. The average person doesn't like it because they're always afraid they're going to get caught next. Yeah, but I think it's, you can encourage them, and I, and I think fines is one way of doing it, uh, uh, clogging them up with, uh, with buses, uh, moving at high speeds. A lot of buses is also doing them. We, uh, we joke that we have the power of weight. <laughs> is that supposed to be funny? Gee, uh, that was from a 2002 October 3rd broadcast of Jim Chapman Live on Cablecast with LTC manager Larry Ducharme. And uh, what you heard there was the plan of the uh, LTC to add, uh, again, you know, um, 14 buses a year starting two years prior to that for 10 years. So we're in the middle of that, 6.5 million for that number of buses. Sounds like they're around 600,000 apiece, give or take. And 
you know, I just couldn't believe his attitude of glee. At, you know, we were going to find the motorists and punish them and clog the roads up and and just mess up the downtown traffic, you know, because that's what we need to do to make these buses superior. And we're going to, you know, lobby the province and we're going to go after all this money because we can't make a penny on our own. That's the whole sad thing of the whole situation. I want to read this to you. This is one of the more offensive pieces I've seen in a newspaper in a while. And it's the editor, Paul Burton's editorial of uh, February 18th, titled London Transit, Poor Target for Privatization Advocate. And it reads as following, quote, It's all too predictable. Paul Van Meerbergen, the London City Councilor member, wants to privatize the London Transit Commission. Perhaps it's just an idle threat amid a, a demand by London Transit drivers for a 9% increase in wages this year. Or perhaps he actually believes it is a good idea. It isn't. If he doesn't th indeed think it is, and his record on such matters indicates that is a distinct possibility, he should lobby for some other privatizations first, like, say, garbage collection and disposal, or the sale of liquor by the province. Public ownership is intended to encourage the use of a service for the benefit of the entire community. That is why pools, libraries, and parks are owned by the taxpayer. Because taxpayers are making an investment that benefits the entire community, whether all individuals use it or not. We want a healthy, safe, knowledgeable, well-balanced community. In fact, we need one to flourish in a global economy. And these services and facilities help us accomplish that. The same is true for public transit, which saves taxpayers more money than it costs them. London taxpayers, in fact, spend much less on the LTC than do taxpayers in almost every other comparable city. It is extremely well run. More important, the LTC not only benefits users, but motorists, too, who are spared the additional traffic and the need for even wider, longer, bigger roads, which, as Van Meerbergen knows better than most, are costing taxpayers far more than public transit. A privatized transit system would not serve the city well. The cost to riders would go up and the convenience on many lines would go down, thereby forcing people into cars and creating more traffic, wider roads. Beyond that, a comprehensive public transit service encourages not just visitors and potential residents to London, but employers as well. If Van Meerbergen thinks privatization is the answer to all ills, he should first start with other city and government services that do far less for the benefit of everybody in the community. End quote. And about now, my blood pressure is just going through the roof reading that. It sounds so wishy-washy and nice and everything, doesn't it? But reading almost anything written by Paul Burton is like watching a journalistic train wreck. I'm sorry. It's a complete epistemological meltdown. It's a misidentification of identities, use of contradictions, ad hominem attacks, irrational and non-sequitur arguments, mindless, unsupportable assertions, always made without argument. Journalism at its consistent worst, and, and, and as a result, I think, most offensive. Instead of educating us and trying to make an issue clearer and bring it into focus, everything Burton writes has the opposite intention, it seems, to, to misdirect, to confuse, to deal with, uh, you know, irrelevancies and non-essentials. But he is consistent in one regard. He's an unapologetic statist whose every philosophical and political argument supports increased state intervention, taxes, more in an individual's personal life. And I, I consider him an explicit enemy of individual freedom and the consensual economic system known as capitalism. Now, those are just my conclusions. Those are my summaries. Now, here's my argument based on the very editorial I've just cited. 
Number one, I said, ad hominem attack. Well, that was against London City Councilor Paul Van Meerbergen, who, because he has consistently been principled on the matter of advocating not only lower taxes, but also reduced government spending, two things that Burton explicitly opposes. We just heard him before the break. He wants to see higher taxes. Burton actually wants to see more government spending and higher taxes imposed on everybody, along with imposing his warped and twisted views of life on everybody else. Burton presents no evidence and makes no argument or case to illustrate how more taxes and government spending are better for anybody. I haven't seen that, mainly because there's no such evidence. And it's not logical either to conclude that forced spending is better than consensual spending. If that's true, then forced sex is better than consensual sex, isn't it? It's the same moral argument. It's the same one that everybody goes out of their way to avoid, you know, usually by condemning the person who dares to make it. But, I'll, you know, you, you call in. You want to call me a name or say this is not true, you tell me. Then there's a non sequitur. After having himself just accused Van Meerbergen of uttering a, quote, idle threat in response to the 9% uh, wage demand by LTC drivers, Burton suggests that Van Meerbergen should pursue privatizing garbage collection and the sale of liquor by the province instead of the LTC. I'm going, huh? Like, how stupid is that? Why not suggest take, you know, why don't we talk about settling the dark side of the moon while we're at it? Jeez. The subject matter is the LTC. That's called context. That's the subject. What are we talking about today, children? The LTC. We're not talking about the moon. We're not talking about garbage collection. And that's how they distract it's on to another little thing, which is totally unprofessional, I think. It's, it's bad, bad journalism. If Van Meerbergen had, had started to mention the sale of liquor, which is, by the way, a provincial jurisdiction in a municipal council, how stupid and moronic would that have seemed in response to an LTC strike threat? Yeah, I think we should privatize the liquor board. That'll fix the bus strike. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yet Burton would suggest that this is a good issue to pursue in this case. Boy, hello. Anybody up there? Any ho anybody home up there, Paul? Of course, we should privatize everything, folks, except the courts, the military, and the police. Everything else should and must be private in order to have a just society. And even a lot of that uh, policing can be done by private agencies. But the government has to be the referee, not a player in the game. And, you know, and if the agenda items about the LTC, then bringing up, you know, the man in the moon is only something that the, the Paul Burtons of the world would suggest, apparently. And next one, misidentification and obfuscation of identities, or as Ayn Rand might say, A is not A. Burton uses the term public ownership as, as if there actually is such a thing. Public ownership is a fiction, as Isabel Patterson so clearly defined and demonstrated in her magnificent book, The God of the Machine, written back in the 1940s, and which we've talked about a lot here. What the Burtons of the world really mean when they say public, of course, they mean government ownership and control. And uh, if it's ownership and control, it's otherwise known as communism, of whatever they want to call, quote, publicly owned. And, you know, pools, libraries, and parks are owned by the taxpayer, says Burton, but that falsely asserts, you know, as if as taxpayers, ownership of anything is even possible. You can't own anything as a taxpayer. You own nothing as a taxpayer. You're just a source of income. End of story. Ownership means the right to use, to sell, to mortgage, to dispose something that you personally own. If you can't sell it, you don't own it. So if you can sell your shares of the city parks or you can sell your share of you know, London Hydro, they always tell you own that, then you could say you have some ownership because you'd have shares. You'd have some kind of thing you can call an ownership. But as a taxpayer, you own nothing. And as long as we keep talking about it as though we do, we will be stuck in the muck of never 
resolving taxpayer issues or even government spending. There's no such thing as taxpayer money in this context. It's all the government's money. In the city of London, the pools, libraries, and parks are owned explicitly by a corporation. Hello? It's called the Corporation of the City of London, and a lot of you know how to make a check out to that corporation. That's where you have to write your check to. And only that corporation has any ownership rights with regard to the pools, libraries, and parks. And for that matter, our city streets, which are also not public property in the sense, but corporately owned property. If you're talking about ownership, then it's government. If you're talking about use, well, hey, you can use the word public then, but then you'd have to include the private market. Grocery stores are public places. A lot of private places are public, wherever you are invited in. And it's the owner in that context who decides whether the quote-unquote public is invited or not. And the government can keep you out of a lot of property it owns as well. Don't kid yourself. Then there's unsupportable assertions. When he says public transit, which saves taxpayers more money than it costs them, London taxpayers, in fact, spend much less on the LTC than the taxpayers in other comparable cities. Well... This argument is the compound interest on the false premise of a public ownership. Again, it's not possible, not, not even metaphysically possible, for government transit to save taxpayers more money than it costs them. It makes no sense at all. Again, as taxpayers, we have no interest in, in public transit. And what the government spends its money on is not relevant to cost savings. If, for example, the city rips you off $100 a year to pay for the bus drivers in the LTC, how is taking that $100 from you forcibly, uh, you know, being called being, you know, less than paying nothing. I don't get it. Ah, says Burton. But London taxpayers, in fact, spend much less on the LTC than do taxpayers in almost every other comparable city. So, when Burton says that this saves taxpayers more money than it costs them, when he says that, it makes even less sense. Because if saying that London taxpayers spend less on a given service than taxpayers in another jurisdiction, that's a different thing than saying public transit saves taxpayers more money than it costs them. This is a, a non-connect. Just words without you know, foundation or meaning, always leading us back to the ideology that would force this kind of thinking on someone, and that's always statism and collectivism. And he, and he says how a privatized system would not serve the city well and how the cost to riders would go up and the convenience would go down, etc., etc. Well, maybe you've never seen how some public transit systems work in other countries. I remember back in the 1970s when I used to spend a good deal of time down in Trinidad and Tobago, not exactly what you call your rich country. I found their, their quote, system of public transit to be fascinating and worked infinitely better than anything up I saw up here. Even the the government played a very minor, minor role. Now, to begin with, there were no buses or bus routes as we would understand them. Any private individual would have a right to hire his car out to carry passengers. So as long as his vehicle license indicated his status as such, and you wouldn't, all the cars driving around the country, the license plates look just like any other, except if you saw one that started with the letter H, it meant for hire. And the driver in that car could decide to either be available or not. If he stopped for you at a designated spot, then obviously he was available. And some cars would follow prescribed routes and would pick up passengers at designated locations, you know, kind of similar to a bus stop. But I don't ever recall waiting for longer than a few minutes, and it's certainly a sociable way of traveling, because, you, you know, you only have a few people in the car, you tend to say hi to each other. And talk about inexpensive to the, to the rider and zero cost to the taxpayer. And this in a country, you know, where people are as poor as a doornail. And, and Burton claims that costs to riders would go up. Certainly possible. 
but not necessary or likely even if we privatize the system as it is. The city might still pay for the contracted out bus service system, even pay 100% of the fare if it wanted to. And if not happy with it or constantly threatened by labor strikes or strife, the city could contract out another private service, all within the same parameters as the current system. You know, here at UWO, I understand that students are forced to buy, you know, forced to buy LTC bus passes, pa- passes in their tuition. I mean, how corrupt is that? You know, I, I want to force you to buy something, you know, from my company that I run, please. That'll, that'll work out cool. And by the way, that additional traffic to which everyone always refers by suggesting that if you get, take away the buses, you're going to get congestion. You know, I've actually personally experienced a condition of no public transit during the last few TTC transit strikes in Toronto. And if you recall, you heard me uh, uh, on clips here debating union boss and anti-capitalist and and, uh, anti-Jewish activist Sid Ryan as a consequence of the city's Toronto transit strike. And I was there a few times, and I always anticipated the worst when I got there, only to find that the streets were practically empty and traffic was moving along like I'd never seen it before. And then it suddenly dawned on me, hey, it's public transit that clogs the streets. Trolley cars, giant buses constantly stopping, pulling over, otherwise interrupting traffic flow. You know, that's the reality of public transit. Love the, love the subway, though, but, but that's not a case for it or against it. It's just another price the public has to pay. So, you know, in the world of of the Paul Burtons, economics is all turned upside down. Instead of user pay, it's non-user pay, and uh, user don't pay. And, of course, the biggest non-user demographic of any government service is the taxpayer. And whether socialist, communist, or fascist, this system necessitates government being used as an instrument of economic coercion, which is the single distinguishing characteristic of all non-capitalistic economic systems. And that's why I say... Let's privatize the LTC now. Now, we we'll take a break. When we come back after this, we will be talking about landlord licensing and the real story behind that one. Well, then we'll just have to start all over again, Tim. Yes, but do you mind if we just take a five-minute break? For... I'm pooped. Uh, buddy? Would you uh, mind moving over a little bit so that we could sit down? You a cop? No. That means you have a dispossessed notice. No. Oh, dispossessed? No cop? How about a dime? You got a dime? For a dime, I can go have breakfast, and then you can use my bench in the meantime. Your bench? <laughs> this bench is public property. What's it be? I ain't part of the public which owns this property. <laughs> property owner? Sitting here panhandling dimes? Maybe I should open up an office. <laughs> one and a half billion pounds available for tax cuts and what do I find? What do you find, Prime Minister? I find that the Chancellor of all people opposes me on this. A wonderful chance to be popular with the voters and he says no. Doesn't that surprise you? No. (laughs) Doesn't surprise me. Why doesn't it surprise you? Uh, Because he's advised by the Treasury and the Treasury don't believe in giving money back. It's not theirs. It's the taxpayers. That is one view. It's not the view of the Treasury. (laughs) Not once they've got their hands on it. But if they don't need it. Sorry? If they don't need it. Taxation isn't about what you need. No, what is it about? 
Prime Minister, the Treasury doesn't work out what they need to spend and then think how to raise the money. What does it do? They pitch for as much as they think they can get away with and then think what to spend money. If you start giving money back because you don't need it, you're breaking with centuries of tradition. <laughs> what would happen to the British Navy, for example? We'd still be there. We still need a navy. We have only four capital ships, so we'd need only four admirals and one admiral of the fleet. How many admirals have we got? Sixty. <laughs> the Treasury is the most powerful department because it controls all the money. If you take away its money, you take away some of its power. So naturally they resist. So how do we get the Treasury to agree to these tax cuts? By getting the Chancellor to agree. Well, how do we get the Chancellor to agree? By getting the Treasury to agree. Humphrey, this is impossible. <laughs> yes, you're quite right, Prime Minister, it is impossible. And there you have it. That's from Yes Minister, one of the most brilliantly scripted British comedies to come along in decades. You really have to watch that show. It's not a comedy, folks. It's reality. And it was written by some very brilliant people who understood how government actually worked. And it doesn't really take necessarily, you know, a capitalist, socialist type of viewpoint, but it certainly takes into account the realities of government. Uh, which here is another one, this, this, this landlord licensing. What another municipal boondoggle. You know, Jeff Schlemmer, I've debated Jeff for many years here, right here at the station and, and over at CJBK on left, right, and center when we used to do that. He has an editorial in the September 21st Free Press entitled, Tenants May Be Misled on Landlord Bylaw Issue. Well, I'll agree with that title, but not by the way he has written it. Of course, he blames uh, the, you know, town hall meetings exploited by business interests into opposing the government plans to rein in excesses by the worst of those businesses. What does that mean, excesses? What's an excess? Excess of what? That's, that's a meaningless word. It probably means something good. But uh, he doesn't say because he doesn't want to say. Because, you know, I know how these guys work. I've seen these guys before. And, of course, he takes his general attack on the businessman. He brings up um, the health care debate in the United States saying, oh, no, you know, this debate is just like that. And he talks about how the London Property Management Association is a lobby group for London landlords, which is true. And he says the bylaw doesn't apply to them, which is true for the time being, but not in the future. Um, and he talks about how, you know, they're using all these terribly uh, horrible... Look at this. The LNPA's tactics toward the bylaw has been a fascinating mirror of those that we've seen work well in the U.S., most notably over weapons of mass destruction to get support for invading Iraq, and more recently for the insurance companies opposing extending public health care to the millions of Americans who can't afford doctors. Paul Burton all over again, isn't it? A whole other non-story. What's that got to do with landlord licensing? What's the justice behind that? And, and on and on he goes. This is important. He says, uh, you know, he talks about how, how terrible it is that landlords cast themselves as the friend of the tenant because that's just terrible. That took chutzpah, he says. Landlords control what information can be posted in their buildings, he says. So they're able to post a whole series of uncontested tenant notices. By the way, that happened with the previous um, um, law before council, which of course has been changed several times. So they can always say that the, the landlords went nuts on that one when they've already changed the law and they can say, well, we're talking about this one now, you see. It's a constant, constant shell game. And I, I could keep on going with this piece of drivel, you know, talking about what they're doing this to protect, you know, to, uh, to, to, to protect 
tenants and get rid of bad landlords and anybody who's against it wants to protect bad landlords. I mean, this is just morally, intellectually, and factually dishonest. It's a piece of drivel. It doesn't even deserve publication on the back of a sheet of toilet paper. Jeff, you should be ashamed of yourself for writing something like this. And boy, do I ever smell another left-wing ripoff scam just around the corner. You know, I got to watch both Jeff Schlemmer and Susan Eagle and United Church, that whole statist gang there, successfully ruin a small London landlord. And you all know about that. It was big news here in town in an attempt to seize control of his buildings for so-called public housing, which is really what's behind all this. But they weren't successful in obtaining the buildings, which were picked up by uh, London developer Peter Sergatis, who was immediately persecuted and harassed by Eagle as soon as he assumed ownership of those buildings. And essentially the same thing is going on here, but on a much broader basis. And yes, it is a government plot to rip people off. It has no other purpose. Um, again, you know, Schlemmer did all the things that Burton did, all the misidentification of identities, ad hominem attacks, uh, against business, you know, for having perfectly legitimate interests to protect, against tenants for being so stupid. Well, if we're so stupid, why do you want to protect us? I mean, wh- wh- what are you talking about? And he talks about, you know, them being on two different sides and all that stuff, and the non-sequitur, George Bush, healthcare debate, blah, blah, blah. Just ad hominem attacks and on and on and on. But the real story behind this is, um, oh, another thing too, something that Jeff says, he says, quote, the LMPA might have played the good corporate citizen card and endorsed a crackdown on slumlords. Well, I couldn't believe that. I, says, I, don't, know, I don't know where Jeff's been throughout this whole public de- debate. If there's a single argument I've heard made over and over and over and over and over again, but the Jeff Schlemmers of the world don't want to hear it for some reason, is that the city should go after the slumlords and leave the innocent landlords alone. Why are you taxing the innocent? You know, I've got reams of audio talk show tapes and files full of newspaper clippings to verify this fact. Uh, to argue that the intention of the LMPA is to protect bad landlords is so bizarrely dishonest and irrational. You know, that, that demands moral judgment. Show me one person who ever got up to say, I want to protect bad landlords. It's, it's, it's so stupid. Uh, it's just vacuous. But, you know, um, then, then you have people like uh, Joni Baker, who was on, on the show with Steve Garrison, and she kind of gave away a lot of the show, a lot of the whole thing there. Um, you know, she, she always talks her way through the whole situation, and she talks about how, well, we've got, you know, regulations everywhere, other businesses have to be blah, blah, blah. None of that's got anything to do with anything. And, um, she, but she does say she doesn't think the general taxpayer should pay for a problem that's not theirs. And um, this was interesting, she said. She said, quote, Right now, bylaw enforcement officers can only look at exterior aspects of the building. And she says, I can tell you over time I've had calls from people living in illegally converted basements uh, full of mold and mothers who've had, you know, and on and on she goes and vulnerable and all this, okay? And then she talks about London housing and how they've got a list of 2,000 people waiting for public housing. And she doesn't want to see taxpayers pay for more for more more for housing when she says we have a lot of housing in the city of london referring to the property of other people of course not to the property of london housing and that's what they want to do they want to get in at um into these people's properties it's not about the 25 bucks a year it's not about the building it's not about that it once you buy that license and listen landlords don't go buying that license because your property will not be yours it will cease being private and turn into public and i was only speculating on this until here it confirms london free press not part of the story but part of the facts jonathan share last paragraph council okay's license quote 
Landlords will be given checklists by the city that highlight key areas of safety and health. A landlord must fill them out, share them with tenants, and submit to City Hall. The bylaw also enables enforcement officers to enter rental buildings without permission as long as they provide notice, and that's what it is all about. When land when the tenant has to sign those forms and he's got to fill out forms every year, there's going to be disputes. The Jeff Schlemmers of the world will love handling all those disputes with government money, taxpayer money, because he works for legal aid. You can see the whole plot, can't you? It's as obvious as anything. It is a ripoff from top to bottom. I've seen these same clowns do the same thing, and we'll be talking about this again for sure on future shows because we got to go right now. We're out of time. So we hope that you'll join us again next week as we continue this journey in the right direction. Till then, you take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I'm a little off tonight. I should tell you this. I'm a little off tonight because I'm trying to quit smoking. Has anybody ever tried this before? Quit. You, you did? Did you do it? You did? How'd you do it? Cold turkey? That's it? Wow, I'm on the Zyban right now. Have you heard of that? Oh, man, non-smokers should do this drug. <laughs> it's a happy pill. <laughs> they say not to drink alcohol on it, but do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm addicted to this stuff. I'm gonna have to smoke again to get off the Zyban. It's gonna be. <laughs> this is so fun. <laughs>